This is Peter Bart and Mike Fleming, and this is the Bart Fleming Podcast. So, Mike, I, I'm starting to read these year-end summaries, sort of pundits looking back on the trends of the year and trying to find some meaning in all this. And it's always a struggle, but this year, I think that 2018 really was an important year in several important ways. For example, it was the first year that more money, more attention is being spent on content for streaming rather than for theatrical exhibition or even television. But it was the streamers who were making the most deals and shouting action the most often, whether it was Netflix or the new Disney Fox uh, initiative or AT&T's efforts involving Warner Brothers and HBO. But in any case, the, the, um, there was, there was the, the ground was shifting under us. Uh, so th- that I think was worth commenting about. How do you feel about that? I have, um, I've looked at it from a number of angles. One of which was, you know, studios had their way when it came to how much they paid talent, how much they paid writers, how much they paid directors, because they were the only game in town. And you would be told of the ceilings on how much you could get for this, that, and the other thing. And then suddenly this upstart Netflix comes along and they are willing to pay more and they were willing to pay a premium and they are putting together more movies than really any studio in town. And so it seemed like it had become a new lifeblood for um, for talent in terms of how much they earn. And now I read a piece in the New York Times the other day uh, on Scott Stuber and the and the high level of ambition to really reel in projects that could easily be theatrical releases. And there was a part of me that that you know because I've seen here on Long Island Toys R Us close. You can't find a bookstore anymore. And they've basically all been put out of business by Amazon and other online uh, entities which can sell for uh, for less because they don't have their they don't have the brick and mortar stores and the staffs. And I there was a little part of me that wondered, are we are we seeing the beginning of the degradation of the theatrical uh, marketplace? And I think exhibitors have to be really mindful of it. And I guess my question is, how does this Disney Fox thing um, and the fact that they are going to basically hold a, a, a huge amount of clout in the theatrical marketplace, how is that, is it, is that just going to benefit them and their means, or is it going to help hold up the, the proud tradition of films that appear first, um, you know, in theaters? I think you're right in your apprehensions. On the other hand, uh, I think that, you know, bigness is is the story in so much of, of American life that whether it's Amazon or Netflix or Disney, I think that, as I said, the ground is shifting under us. And I think people are still going to see movies in theaters, that's for sure. But they're going to see maybe Disney movies in theaters, hopefully in more theaters. I think 2018 was a time of the, the ground was shifting under us, but it was also the year of fear. Folks working in Hollywood now live in fear 
of saying the wrong thing or making the wrong gesture of unintentionally crossing boundaries, new and old boundaries. Now, I'll make it clear, I'm all in favor of the Me Too cause and applaud the rebellion against harassment. But I think we should also point out that the, the price we are paying for these phenomena. You, you know, as an emblem, Mike, look at how tough it's been this year to select a host for the Oscars, or for that matter, an act for the intermission at Super Bowl. I mean, everyone's social media profile has to be scrutinized. All sorts of litmus tests have to be taken. So we've gained a lot this year. We've also, I think, lost some of the elements of social interaction that we valued in the past. How do you feel about all that? Well, I think that there was going to be an inevitable impact um, from the Me Too uh, movement. And I mean, it was so high profile when it started out and ensnared Harvey Weinstein. And he was such a big name. And now Les Moonves has, uh, has basically become television's answer to Harvey Weinstein. But I have seen actually some good things. I've seen way more um, inclusion in the, in the projects that studios are putting together. They are, they are going out of their way to hire female directors and directors of color. And I think that that is, is a very interesting facet. The thing that draws me up short though, is that with this social media, and you, you mentioned it with, uh, with the Oscar hosting thing and what happened to Kevin Hart, is there is a danger of a democratization of the creative process at, on the ground floor. And what I mean by that and I use the, the, the example of, of Scarlett Johansson being, being the subject of a shaming campaign on that movie that she wanted to make, Rub and Tug, which I just thought was wrong. And we constantly now get missives from special interest uh, advocates, basically in, in, in high levels of anger that someone got a role who isn't actually disabled or who, you know, I, it, it, at a certain point, I think artists need to be able to make the movies that they want to make, and people will either go see them or not go see them. And that's really how they get to vote on whether a project is a success or not. I think that this is a, this is a concern. Studios used to just not even listen to these things or factor them in before. They wanted big stars. They wanted, they wanted hedges against their, their huge investments that they put on these movies. But now some of these, some of these, uh, some of these histrionics are filtering into the decisions that are being made. And I find that to be um, a, a bit worrisome. Um, I think you're right. I think um, it isn't, it's a, it's a, I don't like to feel sorry for, for executives, particularly the overpaid executives at Netflix. They're sort of like, I am told, their, their salary scale is downright scandalous. But on the other hand, you know, people have to be extra careful about what they do and what they say and who they hire. I mean, as they had the, the, the boss of one important company the, the other day was telling me that it used to be nice to compliment a woman uh, that she looks great now. But now it's interpreted as a suggestive remark. So forget about suggesting a, a quick hamburger. Um, the, the dialogue 
between the genders has been somewhat paralyzed, just as you point out, the, the, the business of casting movies, also subject to a degree of paralysis. From some of the things that I've read, and I will, uh, again, use Les Moonves as an example, I don't think that there's any way to misinterpret um, the messages that, uh, that, the, that a lot of men have given to women. And so I think these are slight adjustments and, and maybe some awkward, uneasy moments, and people have to be careful and mindful of how they speak to each other. But I don't see any of this stuff as a bad thing, particularly. Except, you know, Mike, that most of the uh, of the of the mistakes being made and significant ethical and moral mistakes were made between 20 and 30 years ago. So there is sort of uh, no statute of limitations for past indiscretions. But, you know, you mentioned the hits and and the misses this year. So let's turn to that for a minute. To me. If among the, the biggest flops of the year um, seem to be movies that somehow got lost in time. They, they were either lost in the future, like epics like Wrinkle in Time or, or even Solo, the Star Wars story, or they were lost in the past in, in costume dramas like Robin Hood or The Nutcracker, both, both of which were enormous turkeys. And if you analyze what worked and what didn't work this year, it seems to me in retrospect, these pictures that were lost in time, you know, were, were doomed from the start. And also, how do you really go about releasing a movie called The Sisters Brothers? Did, did anyone seriously think that that movie is going to be accepted by people? I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, uh, of, of uh, bludgeoning movies that come out and don't work. I think these movies, you know, you, you know this because you made movies. You're faced with a script. You're, you're faced with, uh, with all kinds of variables as you basically say yes or no to a movie. Your cast, maybe it's, why does it seem exciting to you? If, if, it, if you feel in your gut like it's a movie worth making and it fails, I, 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 I think it's just part of the job. I think it's very hard to make, first of all, good movies. And it's also very hard to make movies that succeed financially. And I feel like this is just, uh, um, this is just part of the, part of the risk uh, in what makes a, a business so exciting and gratifying when a film succeeds. But I'm, I, I would never call a movie a turkey. I just, I think that there's, uh, I think that this creative process is incredibly difficult. And it's just that some movies, some movies, um, you know, they get made for the right reasons. And maybe that maybe it maybe a movie fell off course on, on its track or maybe it's just too difficult to market or maybe it is released at the wrong time and comes up against a uh, brisk competition. But um, but I, I I don't know, I, I guess I usually when I go to see a movie, knowing is enough about the difficulties of the creative process. I try to look at that movie, even when it isn't a failure, deemed a failure, um, from the standpoint of the choices that they made and where they went right or where they went wrong. And quite often, I would say, I'll see a movie that I quite like, and it, and it will sadden me that it does not do business. I, I agree. Well, you know, having worked at three different studios, believe me, I can appreciate your point when you say it's hard based on script and cast just to 
to predict how a picture is going to do. But once the picture comes out, it's interesting how many mistakes the critic made, the critics made in, in, in analyzing a film. I mean, the biggest example this year was certainly Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a $400 million hit. It's like one of the most successful musicals of all time. The critics, by and large, hated it. And then you have a picture that you and I liked a lot, the Green Book. Now, that picture was not supported by critics, and it really has not done well. As, as, as fine a movie as it is, it's simply not, fine. It's not getting the audience that I think it deserves to get. You know, and now the jury is out on Clint Eastwood's picture, The Mule, which I think is a really interesting, unique picture. Some feel it's a bit sentimental. Some of the critics have, have complained about that. But I think the idea of, of an 88-year-old man getting out there, and he, Clint is in every frame of the picture. I don't think he's put himself in the picture in 20 years. And I think it's a very effective and very courageous picture. But once again, I don't think the critics are really supporting very well. Well, it came out so late, and I don't think it was shown to critics groups, so it really wasn't meant to factor in award season. But I'll go see it. I haven't yet, but I'll go see it because I am a fan of what Clint Eastwood does. But the two movies that you mentioned, Green Book, and remember, it's it's a it's a you know it's a holiday themed road movie. That's one facet of the film, and so and if it gets a bunch of Oscar nominations, I I, I can see it um, broadening in the marketplace, and and I can see that people can still discover that film. As a, as for Bohemian Rhapsody, you know you didn't you 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 didn't tell us that the the film was directed by Brian Singer, who because of all this Me Too stuff has been kind of rendered persona non grata. And here, so here you have a movie where the director was completely disappeared and the charisma of this wonderful actor, Rami Malek, is so off the charts that, you know, that you, you, you can't see this movie and not love it. I mean, he's, he is absolutely irresistible. And he came to our Contenders New York event and you, 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 I, I guarantee you, everyone in that crowd fell in love with this kid. He's remarkable, and, and he should get nominated for, for Best Actor. But this is what makes Hollywood kind of interesting and fun and difficult to predict, is that you have surprises like Bohemian Rhapsody. Absolutely right. Well, I admired the New York Times uh, this week for coming out with retrospective with reviews of some of the the great holiday pictures of the past. And it reminded us that most of them were panned also. Like, It's a Wonderful Life, um, the, uh, the, 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 the critics of the New York Times in 1946 said, God, it's so sentimental. And White Christmas in 1954, the, the New York Times critics said, boy, it was really kind of boring. Uh, so, you know, once again, uh, pictures that we now venerate, they all had a tough time getting started. That's the nature of the biz, isn't it? Well, my favorite holiday film, my perennial, is um, is Love Actually. And it seems to be, and it's, it was a movie made in London by a British filmmaker. And, and it, it seems like every time I bring it up to somebody who lives over there, they hate it. I can't, I, and everyone that I know in the States absolutely loves it. My wife and I, when we wrap the, the Christmas presents for the kids, 
um, we watch that movie. We have it on in the background. We've probably watched that movie a hundred times and we can't wait to watch it again this holiday. So it's a, it just goes to show, it just goes to show you these movies that, you know, we all find, we all find our own place and, and, and something clicks in on us um, in, in, in unpredictable ways. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from New York. I, why would I, why would I so, so, uh, you know, why would I plug in so strongly to a movie like that? I have no idea, but I love it. Every year I love it. And, and, and here was the critics analysis of it in 2003. Love actually is a romantic comedy swollen to the length of an Oscar trawling epic that it's more like a record label's greatest hits compilation or a very special sitcom clip reel than it is an actual movie. So, you know, once again, I agree with you, Mike, but it's hard to get past the critics, isn't it? Well, no, but my one point, my biggest, my biggest yeah. dilemma with that movie every year is choosing which, which narrative thread I like best, which characters, uh, which characters arc I like best. And I still maintain that uh, Hugh Grant is the best uh, British prime minister that I've seen on screen ever. <laughs> I agree. <laughs>